1996, there's an author named Miroslav Volf who wrote a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And it was a book about forgiveness. And the premise of the book was the idea that in our kind of current cultural moment, the current climate, that otherness, uh, being different, is almost in itself become evil. Uh, to, to, be, to be someone other, to be of different mind, mindset, different um, way of thinking, um, that, that becomes something that is strange, that creates fear and hatred. And the idea is that uh, as a follower of Jesus, the gospel has to be able to speak into otherness, to be able to speak into uh, relationships of people that think differently than we do in ways that are compelling. And so in this book, Exclusion and Embrace, he talks about this primary uh, a sin of otherness uh, skews our perceptions of reality, causing us to react out of fear and hatred from those who are different than ourselves. And for Christians, forgiveness and reconciliation is what the world needs. To have credibility to, to speak, to be uh, one who can bridge um, the gap between us and the other something that we're called to as Christians to be instruments of reconciliation. And Miroslav Volf has great credibility to speak into uh, the topic of forgiveness and reconciliation and the other because he grew up in what was formerly Yugoslavia. He grew up and watched how the Balkan states spiraled out of control into a violent war in which they were killing each other. The Balkans uh, have always been kind of a hot spot. There's so many different kind of ethnicities that are represented there. And right around the early 90s, the Yugoslav War um, just kind of destroyed all of the Balkan states. 140,000 people lost their lives during this war. And Miroslav Volf kind of watched and experienced his homeland get destroyed. It was the bloodiest conflict in Europe since World War II. Uh, there was great genocide. Uh, there was... Uh, in ethnicities that were targeted. Um, and Wolf watched it all, watched how hatred of the other destroyed his home. Recently, Miroslav Wolf was asked to kind of uh, give some thoughts on the current state of uh, our country, the United States. And he drew from another theologian in Europe in the 1930s, a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, that was alive when uh, the Nazis came into control. And he said when Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, was, was pastoring, he actually wrote a letter to Gandhi. And in the letter, he said this, that a dangerous fever making Germany and Europe lose both self-control and consciousness of what they're doing is kind of sweeping the country. A dangerous fever making Germany and Europe lose both self-control and consciousness of what they are doing. Wolf said that he felt the same thing in the 1990s in Croatia and Serbia. And then ominously he said, I'm also feeling the same way today in the United States. The same type of feeling. And then he said, I hope I'm wrong. When we consider just everything that's going on in our, our world today, in our country, uh, I think a dangerous fever causing people to lose control to lose self-control and consciousness seems to be fairly accurate. And of course, like the loudest and wildest sounds get you know, all the attention. 
but the idea of a dangerous fever that is causing us to lose self-control and how we think about the other, think about people who are different than us, um, it seems like it's a tense moment. And as a church, knowing that we're entering into this election season where it does seem like there's a lot of anger, we felt like we just wanted to talk about how do we talk about politics. And I was concerned about doing that because there's a lot of people are mad and, you know, I might make more people mad and people might leave and, you know, people don't want the church to get involved in politics. And, but then I also know that we should talk about it because if we don't have a language as a church to talk about things that are, uh, are, 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 are things that, that enrage um, emotions, if we don't give our people a language to talk about it, the world does. And when the world gives uh, the language, when the world defines the conversation, when the world frames the issues, I think that's what has caused this, um, this terrible fever that's causing us to lose control. We are gospel people, and we want to have a gospel lens that frames the conversation. We are people of forgiveness and reconciliation. And so I thought it was important to talk about it. So over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about a couple of different things. When when it comes to gospel people having these kind of political conversations, we've noted that Jesus was political. If you look at Jesus' life, he was very involved in, in politics. Not necessarily partisan, but he was always political. One of the things that we said is that we want to keep Jesus, our allegiance, first and foremost to him. Jesus is Lord. And as gospel people, as followers of Jesus, that is where our allegiance lies. We've said that we don't want to give to Caesar what belongs to God, which is our heart and our soul. So we want to engage in politics in a way that we don't lose our soul and we don't compromise our message and we don't lose influence and in the ability to speak prophetically into our culture. And then last week we talked about conducting ourselves in a manner that was worthy of the gospel because some presidential candidate's going to win this fall, but the church wins in how we behave and how we treat others, especially those who are different than ourselves, to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. How we treat the other is essential. So wrapping up the series today, and I want to come to this passage in Luke 22 to wrap up the series. Starting in verse 24, this is a story of Jesus uh, towards the end of his life. It's uh, found in the kind of the Last Supper scenario. And Uh, He's talking with his disciples about kind of what's going on, what's happening. And it says in verse 24 that a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? It is not, is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred on, one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus says, 
you're having this dispute about who's being the greatest. And he goes, that's how the world thinks about the kingdom. But my kingdom, what I'm a part of, what I'm establishing here on earth, this thing that is a future destination, but that we see this present reality of now, is different. What Jesus is doing here is he's distinguishing the kind of people that follow him from the ways of the world. And he uses this political language. He says there are the kings of the Gentiles and the benefactors who lord it over people. He says, but you are not like that. The way that you engage, the way that you travel and journey through this world is different. One translation says, not so with you. But you are not like that. We talked about political jargons last week. And if I, if I could give us a political jargon as a church, when it comes to how the world engages in politics, these words from Jesus that says, you are not like that. Not so with you. The rage, the anger, all of that. Don't get dragged into that. You are not like that. You are different. You are set apart. You are holy people. I've distinguished you to be different in this world. The world operates one way, but not so with you. Maybe that's a phrase you just hear over and over again in the midst of all of the anger that is happening in our world today, is that we are not to be like that. Joel Green, uh, who is a scholar commentating on this passage, says it's interesting that Jesus says he's not teaching the followers that they can't be rulers or benefactors, but the manner of their ruling and benefacting must be utterly transformed by Jesus the way that we engage, the way that we participate. We're transformed by Jesus. Jesus is distinguishing his disciples from the world in this passage. Um, As we kind of close this series down, I just kind of wanted to give some, I think for me, pastoral requests to Desert City, um, some, some challenges that I have for us as we engage in this political season. And they're grounded in the Sermon on the Mount, and I honestly just thought about reading the whole Sermon on the Mount today because I think that we need it. I think that our world needs it. But when Jesus talks about the way that we do engage, the Sermon on the Mount provides such an amazing, uh, I think, blueprint for his kingdom. And I think if there's anything that we do over the next couple months as we engage, spending time in the, work, the Sermon on the Mount every single day um, is absolutely essential for our formation. So I want to read just the Beatitudes and then give some thoughts on it. But Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You were the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do, you, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that may, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. These are words of Jesus' kingdom for Jesus' people. We engage through this lens in everything that we do in this political season. The Sermon on the Mount goes on uh, to have just incredible words of wisdom for Jesus' people. And there's uh, five challenges I want us to, to kind of draw from the Sermon on the Mount. The first is this. When it comes to how we engage politically, the first challenge is to seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom in everything that we do. Matthew 6, says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. What's interesting is all of the anxiety and fear and everything that we're feeling in this moment as we think about the future. When we seek first God's kingdom, this is a passage that's grounded in kind of worry. All of these things will be given unto us. When we seek the way of Jesus, the way that God wants, the kingdom here on earth, I promise that all these things will be given to you as well. And I think it's important we first seek his kingdom because in uh, a, a world that just feels like unstable and chaotic right now, the only kingdom that is unshakable is God's kingdom. And this is what we're seeking with everything that we do. There's a book uh, written by Eugene Cho um, that one of my buddies, he's a pastor named Michael Fay, gave to me, uh, told me to read, um, knowing that we were doing this series. And Eugene Cho is a pastor that also works kind of in the nonprofit world. Um, and was talking a lot about what happens, what tends to happen is instead of seeking God's kingdom first, um, when we get kind of sucked in and engaged in politics, we end up seeking kind of either the political party or the American agenda first before God's kingdom. And so... Uh, what happens is we get these things reversed, so we're actually seeking the wrong thing first, but when we seek the kingdom of God, everything else is added uh, to us as well. But he says this when it comes to kind of our engagement. He says, uh, and he wrote a book called uh, Thou Shall Not Be a Jerk, which is a great title, but uh, when Christians pledge blind allegiance to a political power and its leaders and cannot objectively evaluate what a politician states or espouses, we travel down a dangerous path. We cease, cease to see the world informed first and foremost by the life and teachings of Christ. Instead, we allow political allegiances to identify us. We distort the Bible to justify our political allegiances. Put another way, this is idolatry. Let's allow scriptures and our convictions about Christ and the kingdom of God to inform how we engage the candidates, the political parties, and the election process. Let's allow the kingdom, seeking first the kingdom, to be what shapes how we engage in politics. We start with God's kingdom first, and that is the filter that things uh, go through. Uh, my friend Michael Fay, was, we were kind of talking about this, and he said that he would submit the greatest challenge is actually within Christianity. It's the temptation to build structures and institutionalism of Christianity without parallel commitment to Jesus. Politicians and even Christian leaders sprinkle in a pinch of Jesus into our thinking speeches. 
uh, but only in ways that fulfill their agendas or goals. In other words, using Jesus to promote nationalism is simply not the way of Jesus. And this is a danger of cultural Christianity that eventually and predictably produces cultural Christians rather than disciples of Jesus. From a political perspective, cultural Christianity is when we, our theology is held captive by our politics rather than our politics being informed and even transformed by our theology. We seek first the kingdom because the kingdom of God is the only unshakable kingdom that we are a part of. Second thing, so seek first the kingdom and all we do. The second is to be aware, to be aware. Uh, in Matthew chapter 7, it also says to watch out. It says, be aware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, and you will know them by their fruit. To be aware of false prophets. And in, if we talk about there's only one kingdom that's unshakable, here's another truth. There's only one king who is infallible. There's only one king who is perfect, and that's Jesus. And so as we engage in politics and as we engage in uh, kind of this whole conversation, there's this reminder that these people are not perfect. And oftentimes, um, not only are they not perfect, uh, but they have these agendas that, that would, would take Christianity and hijack it for their purposes. And for us, we just need to be aware of when that's happening. Um, again, Eugene Cho was talking about in his book how, how this kind of plays out. And he mentioned that in the journal, there was this kind of uh, experiment that was done after the last election between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And uh, the Journal of Experimental Psychology uh, did this experiment about how, um, how often uh, we were unable to just kind of be aware of really both sides of our, the pitfalls on both sides. And the reason is this idea of confirmation bias. Maybe you've heard about this idea of confirmation bias. Uh, but confirmation bias is kind of uh, this tendency to embrace information that supports our viewpoints. And the antidote for confirmation bias is to intentionally uh, expose and listen to different viewpoints, which is absolutely hard to do because oftentimes we're entrenched in a position. We've talked about this in this series is that we're so entrenched in a position that we, we don't want to hear or listen to the other. The study looked further to human nature regarding politics, delving into something also called desirability bias, not just confirmation bias, but desirability bias, by looking at the perspectives of people uh, prior to the 2016 election between Clinton and Trump um, uh, there, there was a kind of report that was called You're Not Going to Change Your Mind, um, a summary of this experiment in the New York Times. It says, though there is a clear difference between what you believe and what you want to believe, a pessimist may expect the worst but hope for the best. But when it comes to political beliefs, they are frequently aligned. And here's what Eugene Cho says. He says, here's how this is playing out, this idea of confirmation bias and this idea of desirability bias when it comes to us being aware of our leaders. Here's how it's playing out. When people received a desirable evidence, this is kind of heady, but hang with it. When people received desirable evidence, polls suggesting that their preferred candidate was going to win, they took note and incorporated the information into their subsequent belief about the candidate was most likely to win the election. In contrast, those people who received undesirable evidence barely changed their belief about which candidate was most likely to win. So simply put, we th want to think what we want to think. And no matter what someone from the other party says, they can do no right. 
Cho goes on to say, if Trump cured cancer, I sincerely believe that there are many people on the left who would still not give him praise. This wouldn't be a problem because, of course, he would praise himself. Ha ha, that's a joke. Please don't hurt me. But no doubt this would happen the other way as well. If President Obama cured cancer, some on the right would truly find reasons to criticize him. This is how this desirability uh, bias plays out in our minds. We have created in our minds the idea that our candidate, there's nothing that could be wrong about him, and the other candidate, everything is wrong about him. And we just kind of think what we want to think. And so because of our confirmation bias and our desirability bias, uh, it, it's so hard to just be aware of what's happening. Jesus says to be aware of false prophets. I'm not calling our candidates false prophets, but to be aware that what is happening, uh, we will know them by their fruit. And as we engage in this political season, when we are seeking God's kingdom first and we're aware that these are human beings and they're not infallible, we're able to engage in a way where we honor God and we love our neighbors. There's only one kingdom that is unshakable. There's only one king who is infallible. What this does is it creates nuance. It creates conversations where we're able to, to, to say there's certain things that I like and I don't like. We're not just entrenched into these calcified positions. We can engage with each other and listen to each other. We seek first the kingdom. We be aware of what's going on. Then the third thing says to judge not. Judge not. It says, do not judge or you will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the, pet, the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And this is something that is so hard to do in politics because we get into these heated debates, debates with people, and we start to play the whataboutisms. Well, what about this? What about that? And we go on the attack. The way of Jesus, though, the way for Jesus and his followers is always one of confession and transformation. Confession and transformation, pulling the speck out of our own eye. Confession and transformation, not projection and accusation. You hear the words of Jesus where he says, not so with you. This is how the world engages, projection, accusation, but not so with you. We are the people who are able to confess the things that are wrong about us, that are wrong about the things that we are a part of, and allow them to be transformed into what God wants. And the problem is, is when we're not about pulling the, the plank out of our own eye, when we're not able to confess and allow God to transform it, is we become hypocrites. And if you just have seen so many of the Christian leaders in our country who have tried to project and accuse and, and not been able to like just say, here are the things that I need to deal with in my own life, what it does is it creates a harmful witness in our culture. The whataboutisms is the way the world plays. But as followers of Jesus, confession and transformation, not projection in accusation. And then the last one, or last one, fourth one, fourth one in Matthew chapter five is don't murder anyone. Now, when I wrote this like a week ago, I thought this was kind of funny. And then you kind of have seen what had just played out in our culture over the last week. Uh, people are actually being murdered. Um, 
it, and it seems like every day something happens that is just like this freak accident or something worse and more sinister. There's so much heat right now. There's so much chaos that things are happening where it's like this thing that Wolf was talking about. There's this fever that's causing us to lose control and consciousness. And we're heading down this path where this anger inside of us. Matthew 5 says, You have heard that it said the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, if anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to their brother or sister, raka, which is, I think it's like a Hebrew bad word. If you're ever allowed to cuss in a sermon, you can do it if it's in Hebrew, because Jesus does. But he says, raka is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. This idea that anger, anger starts inside of us. It starts in our hearts. I heard someone say that we tend to see the world in the way that we, in, in, uh, we tend to see in the world what we carry in our heart. So like what's going on inside of us tends to come out. There's this anger and it feels like it's spiraling out of control. As Wolf said, there's this fever that is causing us to lose self-control and consciousness with people that are other than us. They think different than us. They act different than us. I think social media plays into this. I think it's a huge part of this but there's so much anger right now. Jesus says, don't murder anyone. Settle matters quickly with your adversary. You are not to be like that. The rage, the chaos, the seeking revenge. Jesus says, we're different. The ethics of the kingdom. Uh, Especially when it comes to how we engage with people who we disagree with. Um, And I think there's a lot of disagreements that are happening, and that's fine. We're Americans. We disagree. This is part of the democratic process. But to be able to sit down and have a conversation where we're not just launching grenades at each other, not just launching bombs at each other, we have good conversations where we engage, not out of anger, but out of the ability to have a discussion. Jesus says, don't murder anyone. And then finally, the last one coming from the Sermon on the Mount said this, is to pray continually to pray continually. Now, there's so much more in the Sermon on the Mount that I think that we need to hear as it comes to engaging in the political process, but I think this might be the most important thing for God's people, to pray continually. To pray, what happens is we align our heart with God. When we pray, we have discernment and wisdom of what's kind of like really happening. When we pray that we have a heart for other people, uh, we see people created in the image of God, therefore are, are, are worthy of God's love, We pray continually. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a prayer to pray. And I want to close our series with this prayer. And it happens in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. It's called the Lord's Prayer. But hear these words as we pray. It says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Let that be our prayer as followers of Jesus. In this season of politics, in this election season, 
May we have a gospel lens for everything that we do. When it comes to how the world engages in politics, may we hear Jesus' world that says, not so with you. That's not how my people engage. May we be peacemakers. May we bring about truth. May we be, bring about life in all that we do for this political season. The Sermon on the Mount, our challenge is to stay in it over the next couple months. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. Your word that is written thousands of years ago, Lord, but holds truth for us today, even in these moments. Lord, with everything that's going on in the world, it's easy to get caught up in the anger and the chaos. Reminded that there's an evil one, Lord, that is seeking to destroy our souls. Lord, there's so much uncertainty about the future. There's so much suffering happening all around us right now. And it feels like we're slipping more and more out of control. Yet we know that you bring order out of chaos. That in a very polarized world, you offer us a different way. We're a part of a different kind of kingdom. And that doesn't mean that we're not engaged in the way things play out here in America, Lord, but it means that the manner of our engagement is transformed by your kingdom. Let us set our eyes on you. Let us place our hope in you. Let us not despair because you are sovereign. Lord, give us courage and clarity. Allow us to act on our convictions. Allow us to point people towards eternity. Let us be salt. Let us be light. Let us bring about blessing in life. In your son's name we pray. Amen.